Good evening, my name is Tom, and I am in? I knew you would know that. It is an honor and a privilege to appear before you tonight and share my experience, strength, and hope, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Thank you, Madam Secretary, for having me speak tonight. Nineteen of you took newcomer chips tonight. If you took a chip, please hold your hand up. Can we have a hand for those people one more time? We have a lot of cliches in this program, but cliches are also truisms. You are the most important person in this room tonight. This is one of the most important tools in our toolbox, and it will help you to get and keep sober. And whether it's your first time or your umpteenth time, there are miracles that take place in this room. As someone told me once, they've never seen a miracle in church, but they've seen plenty of miracles in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I pray that you are one of those miracles. To the people who took birthday chips tonight, to my new friend Karen, my new friend Lisa, and my commitment buddy Lisa, congratulations. We are so proud of you. Um, everybody has a drunk log, and the first time I spoke, I spent most of the time going over my drunk log. And then a week later, I went to another meeting, and the guy had 38 years of sobriety, and he said, everyone's got a drunk log. You don't want to hear that. You want to hear solutions. So I'm going to be brief with what it was like and focus mainly on solutions. Uh, do we have any USC Trojan fans out there? Life for me began in South Bend, Indiana, a mile from the campus of Notre Dame. It was a pleasure being your friend while it lasted. And I firmly believe that I was born an alcoholic. For me, it was nature, not nurture. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, TV programs of the 60s, Make Room for Daddy, Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, that describes my upbringing. Uh, some of the people I hear that in these rooms they have horrible experiences. They've been victimized. They've had terrible things happen to them. It's no wonder that they drank or used. That's not my story. I was born to two very loving parents. Uh, I was the first of four uh, siblings. And uh, the biggest deprivation I knew in my family was uh, we didn't have a color TV until I was 10 years old. Uh, we never had cable TV the whole time I lived there. It wasn't until I moved out that my parents uh, were able to afford cable TV, I guess, because they didn't have to pay, pay for me. So um, really, I knew no hardship, no, no deprivation. Uh, there's no reason for me to be an alcoholic if you look at it in terms of how I was brought up. But nonetheless, I am an alcoholic. I, uh, the obsession and the craving became real for me. Um, when we were very young, my parents were from Syracuse, so we moved back to the uh, New York State area, uh, New York City area. And uh, about third grade or so, it became popular for the guys to sneak beers out of their dad's refrigerator and bring them out, and we'd pass them around. And uh, I knew I couldn't become an alcoholic because I hated the taste of beer. And also, I was a good boy, so it didn't seem like I wanted to get in trouble for something I couldn't stand, so I figured I was in pretty good shape. And when we'd go out to the woods and a bottle of beer would be passed, I would take the beer and I'd hold it up and pretend to take a mighty swig off and say, oh, man, that stuff was good, and quickly pass it to the next guy. Um, and then something funny happened. In fourth grade, uh, I was a good Catholic boy. I became an altar boy. And uh, the tradition at that time was the very last mass, the last service of the day, the newest altar boy and the most senior altar boy were tasked with cleaning up the church afterwards. 
So after the 12 o'clock services, you would stay late and, uh, yeah, you put the priest's vestments away. You would clean up the, um, communion offerings and things of that nature. Well, while I was doing it diligently, um, my partner, who's a seventh grader, Gary, went down to the wine cellar and he came up with a bottle and he said, Psst. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, oh, not this again. So, uh, you know, in order, I wanted to be manly, right? What fourth grader doesn't want to be a man? And I took the bottle and I pretended to take a sip and something funny happened. It tasted good. I liked it. And I took a big sip and the next thing I know, Gary was pulling it, the bottle out of my hand. And I went over to the sink and filled it up to maintain the level so that it looked like it was full. Uh, so I probably took a really good slug off it. And that was my first exposure to alcohol where I really liked it. And it would be a great story to tell you, yeah, that I got drunk and all kinds of weird things happened. No, not at all. Um, it wasn't it at all. Nothing really changed other than I tasted alcohol. I liked the taste of it. And I remembered uh, that. And uh, when the time came, I said, make mine wine. So that was in fourth grade. The next time I had that experience was in ninth grade. By that time, I went to a junior seminary. And uh, we had an interfaith service. It was a Passover Seder. And they had uh, Manischewitz uh, wine on the table. And my friend, Rusty Jacobs, his dad was Jewish. Uh, he was being raised a Catholic. But he had been to a few of these. And he told me what the deal was. He said, when this is over, everybody's going to have a little Dixie cup of wine on their place at the table. You start at one end, I'll start at the other. And we'll meet in the middle. And uh, again, uh, drank it. And uh, no offense to my Jewish brethren, but the uh, Catholic wine was better than the Manischewitz, but that's OK. <laughs> By ninth grade, my taste buds had, taste, had changed quite a bit. So uh, I was actually OK with it. Only problem was, as Rusty and I neared the center of the table, the other guys caught on to what was going on, and uh, they joined in, and pretty soon there wasn't that much wine left, which was good. Uh, again, I didn't get in, uh, I didn't get drunk. I didn't feel the effect of it. Um, I got a little bit of trouble, you know, one of the priests said, I saw what you did there. Don't do that again. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Um, so the following year uh, was the first time I got to drink for real. And back then, uh, this is in Connecticut by this time, and the drinking age, 18. And drink, uh, the ID cards were not very sophisticated affairs. They were what we called computer punch cards. And some of you old-timers remember those. Uh, all it was was a piece of, um, piece of cardboard and dot matrix printer. And it was very easy to forge um, an ID, or easy to obtain a um, fake ID. There weren't even pictures on it. And uh, we had one guy, he was... Uh, one fellow, he was 15 years old, and he had a mustache. So he looked like he was 18, but he just, all he needed was the necessary credentials. Uh, the only problem was the ID we got was for a Puerto Rican from Spanish Harlem, and he happened to be French-Canadian. But no problem. It was the summertime, so he spent the weekend out in his backyard, got a nice tan, and by Monday morning, uh, Guy Laplante became Edwin Castro Mercado. And it was on. Um, there was a, a woods uh, near our house behind the school. There's two liquor stores across the street. Uh, back then in Connecticut, the liquor stores were open Monday through Saturday. They closed at 8 o'clock. If you got to the uh, our, our little hideaway spot before 7.45, he would go down to the liquor store, uh, loaded with nickels, quarters, and dimes, and buy, uh, in my case, it was Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill, but he'd get, you know, the cheapest kind of beer, the cheapest kind of wine you could have. And uh, immediately from the first day, that I drank wine uh, for a fact I loved it. It made me feel great. I felt like Superman. Uh, some per one person described it as um, I was Clark Kent, bottle of wine was my phone booth. I went in and I came out and it was Superman. Um, I was uh, I felt okay to talk to the jocks and the upper class people in school. No girl was beyond me. Suddenly I had uh, you know, I had the gift of gab and I wasn't afraid to talk to them. And, uh, it made me feel good. 
And uh, it was a wonderful experience. I found the sweet spot. I drink one bottle of the wine, and I feel good. I feel buzzed. It didn't make me sick. I'd come home, um, you know, about 11 o'clock, my curfew time. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't drunk. My parents didn't notice. So I was on. And uh, the only mystery to me was why we had maybe eight or ten people on Friday night, but only about half as many would come back on Saturday night to drink for a second time. And I thought, gosh, why wouldn't you do this every night if you could? Um, so by that time, uh, the hook was in. Um, I didn't know it, but I, the alcoholic uh, mindset had started for me. Um, I loved it, and I drank as often as I could. Um, when I got older, uh, the, in Connecticut, there was no uh, beer or wine sales on Sunday. Uh, however, we were only eight miles away from the borderline with New York, and the first thing you did when you found somebody who had a car was on Sunday drive to New York, and then you could drink on Sunday. And then pretty soon it became... We'd start on Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, and, and pretty soon it was uh, every day of the week we were drinking or doing uh, outside substances. Um, also, uh, as far as outside substances go, uh, everybody says that uh, marijuana is the gateway drug, and I beg to differ. I think beer was a gateway drug for me because I didn't wanted nothing to do with those outside substances. Went to a keg party, had a couple beers, somebody passed me one of those funky cigarettes, I said, yeah, that's like a good idea. And then uh, from there, I graduated. Now, I know it's Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. We talk about alcohol uh, only as respect for the program. But I do firmly believe that uh, outside substances are alcohol in a dry form if we use them alcoholically. So I am speaking to you if you have part of that as part of your story as well. Um, but for me, I was lucky as far as uh, that went. I was able to, uh, when I got older and I had kids and uh, you know, just say no was a big deal, I was able to say no because I wanted to be a good example for my kids. Um, but, of course, uh, drinking was no problem as far as I was concerned. You could buy it uh, in a liquor store. You could sit there in your driveway and share it with your neighbor. I could sit there in my uh, easy chair and watch TV, watch a game, watch uh, news, whatever, and drink. And, uh, you know, I wasn't doing anything wrong. And there was no just say no about that. So uh, I found my comfort in alcohol. Um, so I drank alcoholically for about 40 years, and I considered myself a functional alcoholic. And because I was functional, I didn't consider myself to be an alcoholic. Uh, from an early age, uh, I worked. Um, you know, I started mowing lawns and shoveling snow and uh, babysitting and doing all the kind of things, delivering newspapers that you can have before you're 16. And 16, I got a, a quote-unquote real job. And from, I would say, 1972 up until uh, 2013, I worked steadily. I always had a job, drinking never got in the way. Uh, I felt that if I had a hangover, I still had to go to work. Uh, my saying was, if you want to dance, you got to pay the band. And so I did. And I would go to work with hangovers and still get the job done. So it never got in my way. Um, you know, I was always able to keep a roof over my head. I was always there to pay the rent. Uh, you know, I got married to a nice gal. Uh, we had two kids. Uh, we always had a roof over our head, cars in the garage. Uh, they were always had clothes. Uh, we went on vacations. We had all the good stuff, so I really didn't think I had a problem with alcohol. Except uh, I did notice when I'd get in an argument with my wife, no matter what she would say to me, it would just roll right off me like raindrops. If she said I was a lousy husband, I'd say, oh. she said I was a bad worker, I, I knew that wasn't true. I'd always, I always had a job. I had three jobs with three different colors over 10 years, so I knew that wasn't a problem. When she said I was a bad dad, yeah, my kids worshipped me, so I knew that wasn't a problem. When she said I was a lousy neighbor, I had more friends in the neighborhood than she did. But if she said, you're an alcoholic, I'd kind of cringe because that might be true. And then she came up with something that was, um, she'd say, oh, you're just saying that because you've had your beer. 
So in order to placate her like a good husband, I would not drink for a few days. So then it would be, oh, you're just saying that because you haven't had your beer. So that became a no-brainer for me. If I'm going to get in trouble, I might as well have my beer. And uh, sure enough, I did. And uh, yeah, so it went. Uh, on it went. And, uh, you know, life was pretty good. Uh, first 50 years of my life, I was, had the, I was probably the luckiest guy on the planet. I had no bumps in the road, nothing real bad, no real tragedies. Um, you know, I had a few people in my life pass away, my, most notably my father, you know, my grandparents. Um, but no, nothing really bad happened to me. And then all of a sudden, at the age of 50, I started paying consequences uh, for my actions for the drinking. Uh, first of all, uh, the wife who accused me of being an alcoholic left me. And, of course, um, she left me, so I was the victim. I didn't do anything wrong. I may not have been the perfect husband, but it was her fault. She walked out on the marriage, and uh, that was that. I didn't see that I had any part in it. And um, after she left, uh, my son was away at college. My daughter had a part-time job. And so I came home every day, and the house was empty. And this was the first time in my life that I came home to an empty house. And it was actually kind of neat, because I could do whatever I wanted. I could play the music as loud as I wanted. I could drink as uh, loud as I wanted. I could uh, you know, scratch and burp and do whatever I wanted. Nobody was around. It was awesome for about 30 days. And then all of a sudden, it got old real quick. So uh, I was very fortunate that the company I worked for was less than a mile from my house. I worked for a cable company. And uh, between my house and the cable company was a bar, sports bar, daily. Uh, so what I would do instead of coming home to an empty house is I would stop at dailies. I would go, it became kind of an unholy triangle for me. Work, uh, dailies, home. Wor work, dailies, home. And uh, you know, every day I'd roll in about 515. 364 days out of the year, there was a game on. So, you know, I had an excuse to go in and watch a game, whether it was basketball, baseball, football, badminton, it didn't matter. I was really in there for the drinking. And uh, I discovered something that uh, uh, you know, I kind of had a little resentment when I'd walk in about 5.15. There have been guys that were sitting there since 4 o'clock, and they were already feeling the buzz. And I'm coming in there, you know, I have a big schooner of beer, and I'm trying to catch up to them. Well, I realized, of course, that if I had a shot with that first schooner of beer, that, pretty, that I'd be in the groove right away, like within 15 minutes. And uh, eventually got to the point where uh, instead of having a shot to speed up my beer, I had to have a beer to slow down my shots because I'd really gotten into it by that point in time. Uh, Jack Daniels uh, was one of my favorites. Uh, I loved it. And, uh, it loved me for a while. Um, so that went on for a couple of years. And then uh, uh, bad news happened. The company closed up their doors and moved out of town, and they forgot to take 800 of us along. And I was unfortunately one of the 800. And for the first time in my life, I was out of work. But I thought, well, no big deal. I'll, I'll find a job. Uh, so I took about a month off, just kind of fooling around. And uh, when I started to look for work, I found something out that in my mid-50s, I was now old. And I didn't realize that. I'd walk in, and I'd interview with somebody, and I'd sit across the table from someone my son's age. And uh, I'd be pouring my heart and soul out and telling them all about, you know, my life, my experiences. And I could tell by looking in the eyes, all they really cared about was what was for lunch. And I did that for, you know, six or eight weeks. The job market wasn't that good. And I had the worst thing I think you could give an alcoholic. I had a, an income stream, unemployment. I had a very generous severance. They took very good care of me. I had money in the bank, and I had credit cards. So, um, you know, I, I got to the point where I said, hey, uh, you know, I don't need to go look for a job today. I'll go down to the bar and hang out with my buddies, and I'll look for a job tomorrow. And then, of course, tomorrow became next week, and then um, next week became next month, and then, well, I'll do it after the holidays, and the next thing I knew, I was out of work for a year, okay, and 
That means you, you pretty much become unemployable, especially in a soft job like this. Um, so I was in trouble, and uh, I was running out of money, too. Uh, I spent all my severance. I exhausted my unemployment. My credit cards all had a new nickname. That was Max. Um, and and I, really, I really didn't have a pot to go in. Um, so I started getting a lot of trouble. I remember uh, one of the things I did, it seems kind of humorous now, but back then it wasn't so much. You know when you come home, you have a pocket full of change, you throw it in a, co in a coffee can somewhere? I took my coffee can and walked across the street to a Walmart grocery and dumped it in the Coinstar and came out with about $64. Of course, the, you know, being a, an analytical type person, I did the best thing I could and walked over and bought two big 24-ounce cans of beer. And to me, that was a sound investment. But naturally, that uh, money didn't last long, and uh, I got myself in trouble real quick. So I decided, uh, yeah, I started to realize that drinking was the cause of my problem. I knew I had to quit drinking. Uh, I knew it was just a matter, to me, of willpower. And this was December, and uh, I didn't want to ruin Christmas. I didn't want to be a drunk at Christmas, because by now I was having uh, accidents, you know, or I vaguely remember the sidewalk coming up in my face, and I'd go to look in the mirror in the morning, and there'd be purple spots where we went the night before, things of that nature. Um, you know, we talk about insanity. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, you know, I would say, yeah, I'm not going to drink today. Of course, 45 minutes later, I'd be doing my first shot. And it'd be like, you know, right after the sun came out. So, um, you know, December 3rd all the way to Christmas, I didn't have a single drink. And that, that meant I wasn't an alcoholic if I could quit for that long. And I went to my favorite cousin's house for dinner, and uh, she offered me a beer. And I thought, what the heck, I'll see what I can quit drinking. I haven't had a drink in over three, three weeks. Uh, it's dinner time. I'm going to have a full dinner. I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Yeah, I, I deserve this. I deserve a beer. And uh, I had a beer, and then I had another beer. And then uh, I told you Jack Daniels was my potion. And um, I was gifted with a bottle of Gentleman Jack Daniels, top shelf stuff. And I thought, well, this is good. You know, I'll just drink it for the week. I'll just nurse it to the week. And then New Year's Day, that'll be the day that I'll quit drinking again. Uh, yeah, New Year's resolution and such. And a funny thing happened. On December 27th, I woke up, and I took that bottle of Gentleman Jack and turned it upside down, and nothing came out. Um, so I thought, well, all right, I'll just go buy myself another bottle of whiskey, and I'll nurse that for a couple of days. And uh, I think you know the story. Um, you know, uh, by the time New Year's Day rolled around, I was in worse shape than I thought that I was previously. Um, December 1st, excuse me, January 1st became January 2nd, and January 3rd, and, you know, the New Year's resolution went right out the window. And by this time, I didn't have any money, hardly at all. Uh, I didn't pay any of my bills, and uh, most importantly, I didn't pay my mortgage. Now, um, I was very lucky. I told you I grew up in a very, uh, you know, very all-American type house. And one of the most important things my parents did was they bought a house when I was um, six years old. And they kept the house in the family until 1999, when I was 41 years old. And even though I moved out in 1981 and never uh, moved back, it was always a source of comfort to me. It was always a stability. It was always a rock in my life. If anything happened to me, anything happened to my kids, anything happened to my wife, then I could move back into that house. It was a safe place for me and a safe place for my family. And it remained that way uh, until my mom sold the house when it got to be too much for me. Um, so I always wanted to keep the house that I had bought in uh, that same year, 1999. And so for me to not make mortgage payments, for me to sacrifice my home to drinking, uh, was a real sign of desperation. And I later came to find out that desperation was a gift. Um, so what happened was uh, the following month, uh, I got foreclosed on. And my uh, now ex-wife was still on the uh, mortgage. So she got a foreclosure notice, too. And she came to me and she said, 
Uh, you know, I got a, a letter from the bank that said that they didn't get the January payment. They're going to foreclose. You better get a copy of the canceled check and get it to them. And then she looked at me, and she realized there was no canceled check. I just sat there. And uh, the next thing that happened was, uh, to me, I believe, a spiritual experience. She and I were the only ones in the room, and I heard a man's voice say, I have a problem, I can't stop drinking, and I need help. And I looked around, and I was the only man in the room. And without realizing it, I just practiced the first step of our 12 steps. And uh, fortunately, she knew something about the program. Uh, by that point in time, our son was four and a half years sober. He uh, a shining example of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, she, uh, she, put me in, she uh, convinced me to get in contact with him, get the number from the central office, and start going to meetings. Uh, I called the uh, central office. I found out there was a meeting on the Monday night across the street from my house. And I, uh, I went over there, and it took me 90 seconds to get there, but I want to tell you it was the longest walk of my life. Uh, I got to the parking lot, I stood out there, and uh, I started making excuses to myself. Uh, Monday night's not a good night to get sober. Everybody's all upset from, everybody's all upset from uh, work. They don't want to hear me. Oh, it's a men's meeting. They're probably all going to want to jump me in or something. I don't like that. Um, uh, you know, you know I'm, I'm not like these people. I'm better than them. I, I don't care. And uh, then all of a sudden, this guy walked up, and uh, he didn't look like an alcoholic. He was dapper, well-dressed, had all his teeth in his mouth, and he shook my hand. And he said, hey, I'm Rick. Are you here for the meeting? I thought he meant Bible study. And uh, next thing I know, like a tractor beam on Star Wars, I'm kind of getting pulled into a meeting. So it wasn't exactly how I'd envisioned things working, but uh, it, it's what needed to be. And I walked into that room, and uh, I was welcomed. And uh, they came to the part where they asked for newcomers, which less than 29 days, 29 days or less. And I stood up and I said, my name is Tom and I am an alcoholic. And immediately I felt like a sack of rocks just fell right off my back. And they applauded me. And I knew immediately I had made the right decision. And this is important to me that that guy shook my hand because if he'd given me a dirty look, I would have walked away and probably dead right now. So think about that yourself. Whenever you're in a meeting and you see someone that, that looks new, uh, that looks like they're out of sorts, that looks like they're um, scared to be there, reach out and uh, reach a hand to them encourage them because it makes all the difference in the world. Trust me, this I know. And uh, many of you know this too from your first meeting. Remember, we're all newcomers at one time or another. So what happened? Um, I got a sponsor right away. He wasn't the ideal person. He ended up not being the person for me, but he started me working through the steps. Uh, he told me to take commitments. He told me to get the commitments were important and they keep me coming back to meetings. So I did the easy things at first. I greeted people. I made coffee. Uh, when someone told me that the coffee I made was lousy, and I'd cuss them under my breath, but then my sponsor would tell me, ask the guy, how do you make coffee? And the next week, he would come back, and he would show me his way. And I learned through these experiences uh, how to easy does it, how to take it one day at a time, how to uh, not go upset about things, not let these things get under my skin. And uh, eventually, uh, one day became changed, became four days, and eventually I got that 30-day chip. And uh, from there, I just kept on going. I've been sober 1,641 days, and no day is more important than this day here. Uh, this is the most important day of my sobriety because we do this one day at a time. It doesn't matter what I did yesterday. It doesn't matter what I'm going to do tomorrow. What am I doing right here, right now? Uh, I said before that we have cliches in this program. One of them is meeting makers make it. And so often I see people stop going to meetings, and then eventually I run into them somewhere, and they're not sober anymore. Uh, 
Um, one of the things I was introduced to early on, I was challenged to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I thought, you know, gosh, if I went to three meetings a week, I'd be some kind of superstar. So the idea of 90 meetings in 90 days was um, kind of anathema to my being. But I did it. And uh, you know, by osmosis, I learned the program. I learned to take the uh, cotton out of my ears and stuff into my mouth. And I learned to do what you told me to do. And uh, I became a better man because of it. Um, I learned a lot of things, and uh, you know, the first year I got sober, uh, the most important thing I learned when I took the chip is that if you're not growing, you're growing, which means as much as you think you know, you've got a lot more to learn. And uh, thankfully, you folks have taught me these things. Um, I told you about commitments. Uh, they keep me coming back to meetings. They, uh, they, they, keep me to go to, they make me go to meetings that I don't necessarily want to. Some days I don't feel like going to a meeting. Um, but I go because I have a commitment, and usually something wonderful happens. I'll never forget when my friend Eric stood up here and took the chair. And he said that by uh, shaking the hands of the greeters and looking them in the eyes, he learned something that he didn't know how to do before, and that just blew me away. To me, it was just doing something that, uh, you know, as a commitment made me come back to me. But I realized that I made a difference in his sobriety, and it made me feel wonderful. It made, it made the world to me. Uh, it really meant a lot. And uh, I firmly believe that our higher power speaks to us through other alcoholics. And surely my higher power is speaking to me that night. Uh, I also learned about the amends process. And I told you about that ex-wife. And uh, when I first started making amends, I made the easy ones. I called my creditors up. And I called them up and said, hey, I owe you some money. Can I pay you back? Well, not really difficult. Of course they said yes. And, uh, but it was very liberating because after about 90 days, what happened? My phone would ring. It would be a number I didn't recognize. And I actually answered the phone. I wasn't afraid uh, because I did the right thing. And it meant the world to me. And I started making little amends. I made amends to my kids about not being the best dad I could. And, um, you know, that went really well. And uh, I went to a, a, night, a meeting. I'd go to a 12 and 12 meeting every week. And um, uh, I... I one of them I went to, ninth step, and uh, my son happened to be there. And uh, I was leading the meeting, and I talked about the ninth step. And uh, you know, I, I admitted to the meeting that there was one person that I could not make an amends for. They had a really difficult time, and that was, of course, my ex-wife. And the fact that her, our son was sitting next to us, uh, you know, I had to say to him after the meeting, you know I'm talking about your mom. You know, I had a really difficult time um, making my amends for him. And he said, I understand, Dad. You'll get it one of these days. And so I, that night I picked up the phone and she literally said, not now, and hung up on me. So to me, that was a get-out-of-jail-free card. I was like, sweet, I am off the hook. I do not have to do this thing. Um, but, of course, uh, I, I learned later that if I don't uh, make a, a – if I don't make a thorough nice day, if I don't make these amends, I'm not going to get and stay sober. And one of my friends out there at a meeting, Romy, explained to me that you don't have to make all that amends all at once. She compared it to a big pizza pie. If you sit down and try to eat that big pizza pie uh, all at once, you're going to get sick. But if you eat a little piece now, a little piece, a little piece, eventually you take that whole, um, you, you get the whole uh, pizza eaten and you won't get sick. So what I did is I translated that to every time I saw her, I thought, can I be nice to her? I would say something nice. I would say, oh, you know, it's not nice. Oh, you look good today. Or, you know, oh, can I help you change the cat litter? Things of that nature that um, at first they didn't seem like much, but it set the, the stage. And then one day I went over there and had coffee, and suddenly out of the blue I said, you know, I owe you an amends. I did a lot of terrible things in our marriage. Um, I, I realize now that I thought I was a victim, but I drove you nuts after 20 years, and you had no choice. 
but to leave me. And I understand that now, and I'm sorry. And, of course, you know, we dread making these amends, but she took it wonderfully. And uh, you know, I stand before you now, four and a half years sober, and I think that was a large part of my sobriety. Um, I don't have much time left, but one thing I do want to finish with, um, a lot of great, wonderful promises have come through for me. Uh, none more wonderful than the fact this past year I've had two grandchildren. My son's wife had a baby, and my daughter had a baby. And uh, I told you how important my house was to me, Courtney Storm. And uh, since I've been able to keep running the house, my son has come and gone uh, a couple times, but he's now living on his own. He's beautiful house in the My ex-wife needed a place to stay. She stayed in the guest room for a few months uh, because she's down there now. And uh, my daughter has come and gone a couple times. And the last time she was back, she came with her fiancé. Uh, she became pregnant. I don't know how it happened. Um, <laughs> but now I have a beautiful little granddaughter. And uh, I live in a three-generation house. I'm naturally the oldest one. Um, and uh, I get to stop and smell the roses with this little beautiful baby girl in the house. And, uh, you know, instead of rushing off to the refrigerator to get a beer or heading down to the liquor store to get a beer or, or thinking about going to dailies or tapas and beer or wherever, I can sit there and concentrate on that little girl and how wonderful she is and how good it is to have her in my life. And um, I get to teach her stuff, too. And one of the, the coolest things that happened was uh, fairly recently. Um, I've been teaching this one simple little thing, and she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. She just looks at me and she smiles. And I try and teach her, and she doesn't get it. I try and teach her the next day, and she doesn't get it. I try and teach her the next day, and still she hasn't quite got it. But that's okay. So um, about two months ago, a friend of mine wanted to go with me to a meeting in Newport Beach. I live in Rancho Santa Margarita. It's on Saturday morning, so we have to leave pretty early. So he's newly sober. He doesn't get the easy desert thing. Um, so he says he. He says, hey, can we go to the meeting next Saturday? I said, yeah, sure. So on Tuesday, he sends me a text. With, what time do you want to leave? And I said, well, let's leave at 7.15. He says, okay. Wednesday, I got a text. Who wants to drive, you or me? And I said, it doesn't matter. He goes, I'll drive. Great. Thursday, I got a text. Where do you want to meet, your house or my house? We'll meet at my house. By the time Friday rolls on, I'm kind of a little upset with this guy. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to show him. I'm not going to be out there at 7.15. I'm going to be out there at 10 after 7, and I'll wait for him. Well, sure enough, I get up a little bit extra early on Saturday. And uh, I'm in the bathroom, motoring along, shaving, brushing my teeth and such. And I look, and it's 10 after 7, and my phone goes off. Hey, I'm out here waiting for you. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so now I'm motivated to get out the door. I come out the door, and at the top of the stairs, there's my daughter holding the baby. And I know my daughter's going to understand i got to go, and I'm out here. It's the baby. She's not going to understand it. So I said, oh, I'm in a hurry, honey. i got to go. And my, my daughter says, oh, oh, okay, Dad. Good to see you. See you later. And the baby just looked at me, and she raised her hand, and she said, hi. <laughs> and at that moment, it didn't matter where I had to be, who was waiting for me, what was on my agenda. All that mattered is she finally said hi. And I held her, and I loved her, and I just, I, I just couldn't move. I was overcome with emotion. And uh, the last cliche I'll leave you with is I've heard so many times people uh, say that uh, that child will never have to see me I get drunk, and yet I stand here in front of you with tears almost in my eyes. I think of those two little children, my grandson and my granddaughter, and uh, if I do what you told me, uh, if I follow the program, through the grace of God and the, and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, those children will never see me get drunk. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a miracle. And I hope for you newcomers, and I hope for you uh, to come here every day. You realize those miracles, too. And before I go, I have one last thing to say. Thank you for allowing me to serve you.